is significant for us. Um, this is the 19th anniversary of our church. Um, a small group of us planted Cornerstone, and our first service was January 2nd, uh, 2005. And that also means something. Um, we have begun now the 20th year of our church. Did you hear anything I've said up to this point? <laughs> Not a word, right? I had no idea. Should I start over? You're good? Okay, good. Okay. So we've begun the 20th year of our church this week, which does not seem possible to me. Um, I look at my three oldest sons, Alden, Leif, and Sam. Sam was uh, born one month after our first service, and I know it's a real number, but I just, I cannot believe um, we're going on 20 years. Time has flown by at times. Time has felt like a gift, and at times time has felt like an enemy, but through all of it, one has been faithful, and beyond faithful, he has been gracious to us. And so at the beginning of this 20th year, I want to encourage you and challenge you and myself. Let's strive to make our 20th year the most God-glorifying year we have ever experienced as a church. We're called to glorify God with our lives. D.A. Carson says that glory commonly refers to the manifestation of God's character or person in a revelatory context. In other words, we are called to manifest or to reveal what God is like, what His character is like, what He's like as a person to those around us. And I think we often understand, glorify God as solely a vertical thing, something that's just between me and God. We're tempted to do that when we come and sing. We kind of just shut off everyone else, and it's just me and God. But it's as much horizontal, it's as much relational as it is vertical. We cannot glorify God if we're not revealing what His character is like to one another. Now, confession. You know what else the 20th year of our church holds? An election. Wah, 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 right? <laughs> I'm going to be transparent and tell you that that is not something that we as elders are stoked about, okay? In 2020, we saw churches divided over politics. Brothers and sisters in Christ calling each other names that are uncharacteristic of God. We experienced the challenges, too, as we sought to shepherd the body through the implementation of our gospel values, which God has used in His grace to unite and mobilize us. And so, we have a great opportunity in front of us. I truly believe we can see this year become the greatest year for us as a church. And I don't think that will be accomplished by church growth or any other numerical metric. But rather, first and foremost, a year where God is truly glorified where His character and person are manifest before each other and to those outside the walls. So how do we 
do that. Well, for me personally, I'm committing this year to the Sermon on the Mount. It's the place, or at least one place, I think we're most clearly in the Gospels, Jesus spells out the character of God's kingdom. I saw a couple people post that the Bible Project is doing a year of podcasts on the Sermon on the Mount. Maybe, uh, like me and some others, you'll commit to that as well. You're not required to. I'm doing this because you have heard me as your pastor refer to the Sermon on the Mount dozens of times over the last year and beyond. I want to know it, and I want to be shaped by it. 20 years as a church is a gift. 19 years of a a church is a gift. Without question, it is a gift. There isn't a single day as the pastor of Cornerstone that I ever deserve for it to continue, and there will never be a day that I deserve that. But God has allowed it, and I pray that we respond to his grace with glory and honor to our king. It's grace. Another interesting note, this year is also a leap year. And so we all have an extra day to strive to manifest him and his glory to one another and to others. I think that is a gift. With all of that, I'm excited to get to today's text because it is so incredible. We're going to be looking at Acts chapter 4, verses 23 through 31, so go ahead and turn there. Acts 4, beginning with verse 23. And as a reminder, as you're turning there, Peter and John were arrested by the religious leaders. They had healed a man and were preaching and giving praise to Jesus for the healing. And so they're arrested, and before they're released, they're commanded, they're warned by the same people who arrested and crucified Jesus not to speak about him anymore, not to speak of the name of Jesus anymore. And so what do you do if you are Peter and John? I don't think that's an easy thing to answer, because certainly fear is real, concern for family is legitimate, but what do we see them and the rest of the believers do? And that's what we we read in the text today. So if you're able to stand, do so, please, and follow along as I read. Acts chapter 4, beginning with verse 23. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why do the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants 
to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Let's pray. Father, we love you and we thank you and we praise you for the truth of who you are, the truth of Jesus, the truth of the gospel, the truth that you have given to us in your word. We pray that you'd help us, Lord. Help us as we look to this text that we'd be shaped by you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. This is such a great text. I am challenged every single time I read it. Verse 23, when they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. Peter and John are released from the religious leaders. They go back to their friends. Now, it doesn't tell us who that is or what that means that they go back to their friends. Some believe it's a small number gathered in a room, maybe praying for them. Some believe it's uh, many or all of the believers who have gathered in Solomon's portico. The NET version translates it this way. When they were released, Peter and John went to their fellow believers. The NIV translates it as on their release, Peter and John went back to their own people. I think both of those help us see that Peter and John are, are going back to many believers those who are now following Jesus, and they give them a report about what happened. They, they were arrested. And so they tell them what the religious leaders had told them, what they had warned them not to do. Now, what would you anticipate the next sentence to be in the story if you didn't know it? Sincerely, some of you here might anticipate exactly what happens. Some of you might think, well, looks like it's time for the disciples to move on to the next city. This isn't the fruitful ground that they thought it would be, and let's move on to the next city and see what happens if they preach the gospel there, because there's certainly a closed door here. And honestly, that's understandable. You consider the fact that there are brand new believers in this group that Peter and John are speaking to. Those who have just now begun believing and following Jesus as the promised Messiah and that He was really raised from the dead. So you'd think that there would be some fear, and honestly, there probably is some fear within some in this crowd. But also, more than anything, there is trust. And it is beautiful. Verse 24, and when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. When they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God. Now, that doesn't tell us just in that statement what they prayed. It could have been they lifted their voices to God and, and prayed Maybe something like what I would have prayed. God, please 
help. Stop these people who are making these threats. We thought you called us to do this. But that isn't what they prayed. They raised their voices together in unity and like-mindedness. And that, that doesn't mean that we, we interpret that as they all started praying this same thing together. No, it's, it's probably Peter, maybe another apostle, but likely Peter who is praying and they are affirming what is being prayed. They're united in purpose and in heart. They begin their prayer by giving God a name, a name that's consistent with their petition, a name that's consistent with what they're asking Him to do. Sovereign Lord. Now, to address God as sovereign Lord is affirming something. It's affirming that God is the creator, that He is above all things, that He is over all things, that He is through all things, that He is in all things. And it affirms that God's intentions, His plans for all creation and for all of God's people will come about. It's trust. They're saying, we believe that you are in control of all of this. You are sovereign. You are Lord. They trust God even in the midst of threats. God, you reign over this. You reign over these threats. You reign over this circumstance. You reign. You who made all creation. Continues with verse 25. Who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against His anointed. They're continuing here their identification of God. Why the nations are in an uproar. And they're identifying their trust in Him. And they use this text from the Hebrew Scriptures that they believe has to do with their own circumstance. They're quoting from Psalm chapter 2, which I'm going to read for you. Psalm 2 says this, Why do the nations rage? The peoples plot in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed. That's where they end. It continues, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then He will speak to them in His wrath and terrify them in His fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way, for His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. 
This is a psalm that begins by questioning God. Why the nations are in, a, in an uproar and why the rulers are scheming and plotting. And in the psalm, it's clear that the threats and accusations are against the Lord and against His anointed. And it it says in Psalm 2 that in spite of this, He sits in the heavens and laughs. There's a trust in God's sovereign rule. He's going to bring peace and justice to the world. And the means by which he will do that is through his anointed king. The one who will be called the son, the son of God. So clearly this is a psalm about the coming Messiah. God will give to this son not only the promised land as, in, as, it is, as is his inheritance, but all the nations of the earth. And now the believers here in Acts 4 in Jerusalem, after being threatened by the chief priests and the elders, are praying this passage. Praying a very specific text that refers graphically and powerfully to the Messiah as the Son of God who's destined to rule the whole world. In the psalm, in the part that they quote, it begins, why do the nations rage? And that word why there is not lament. It's not sorrowful. Rather, it's saying that their schemes are in vain. Why would they even do this? These religious leaders have assembled to plot against Yahweh and the Messiah. And in the believers, there's confidence as they pray. There's trust. They have assurance that the schemes and attacks of the kings and rulers of the world against the Lord are destined to fail. That doesn't mean that they're praying or thinking that nothing bad can happen to them. Because they're on the Lord's side. That's not what they're praying It doesn't mean they don't think that they'll be persecuted. It means that God's purpose will not be thwarted. Even if they're threatened or persecuted or killed, God's purpose will not fail. And so he continues in verses 27 and 28, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Now, this is incredible. And if you've attended here for a while, you, you might remember that we, we did, we've done an entire Easter series on these two verses. They have incredible depth and importance for us. These, these believers' prayer here is interpreting Psalm 2 as a review of history, the recent history of Herod and Pontius Pilate, as the rulers who conspired against Jesus. Now, if you remember from Luke's first book, the Gospel of Luke, the one meeting between Herod and Pontius Pilate, or at least 
the first meeting between Herod and Pontius Pilate took place during the trial of Jesus, which ended with his crucifixion. So there are two very real things happening in the crucifixion. That's what they're praying here or behind the crucifixion of Jesus. There are very real opponents to Jesus. The priests, the elders, the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, also Pilate and Herod who are the ones who have authority to convict and crucify Jesus. They really do oppose Jesus. Now, at differing levels, but they really do feel that. They really do believe that. They're opposed to Jesus. They really did despise Jesus, especially the Jewish leaders. They, they really did want to get rid of Jesus. They really did plan to have him killed. They really did choose the murderer Barabbas over Jesus being released. And also, through those real events and those real things, God was bringing about His ultimate plan to redeem through the death and resurrection of His Son, Jesus Christ. Those things really happened, but they were a part of God's plan to bring about redemption. So they're praying, acknowledging that these wicked people did what God's hand and God's plan had predestined to take place. God had predetermined the death of Jesus. It was necessary. And Herod and Pilate were instruments. The functioning of their own wills, doing what they chose to do, and they were instruments in God's hand. In other words, just as we see in other places throughout the Bible, even the apparently disastrous things that took place were not outside of God's will or plan. It continues in verse 29. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. It's at this point that their prayer transitions to petitions. And what will those petitions be? They're not at all what I would anticipate. First, they pray, consider their threats. That's the first petition. Sovereign Lord, consider their threats. Now, if I'm honest, that's probably where I would start as well. Probably want to know that God was aware of what they were saying, what they were threatening of His followers. But notice, these believers, in praying together, they don't use the wording that is found in Psalm 2, which is why I read you all of Psalm 2. They don't pray that God would laugh at the Jewish leaders. They don't pray that God would terrify them with His wrath. They don't pray that He would break them with an iron rod or dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel so that they will perish. 
They don't pray that the threats of the religious leaders would be revoked or that they would be proved harmless. They don't pray that they would be spared harm, opposition, suffering, or death. What do they say? Look at their threats and grant to your servants. We're your servants, Lord. Servants of the Most High God. Servants who have committed themselves to the ways of Jesus. We're your servants. And then their second petition, grant that we would continue to speak your word with boldness. That's amazing. What was the warning? Don't speak anymore about Jesus. What is their prayer? Lord, help us. Help us to continue to speak about you with boldness. They want to keep preaching and teaching the gospel of Jesus. It was their boldness that was partly why the religious leaders were astonished, we learned in the previous text. They want to continue to speak about Jesus, to proclaim the good news about Jesus boldly. God, please look at their threats. We believe you are there, that you are the sovereign Lord, that you reign over all of this. So notice their threats. We are here, and we want to be faithful to you and to continue to speak about Jesus with boldness no matter what amazing. It's wonderful. Verse 30, while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. This is their third petition. Stretch out your hand, continue to heal and do signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. That's what got them in this place in the first place. God stretched out his hand and healed the crippled man. But what did that do? It, it didn't just bring persecution. It brought opportunity. It was through that healing that they were able to proclaim the gospel to more people and more people believed in Jesus. And the number grew to, it says, 5,000 people. And so they're asking for more of that. More opportunities to say, Jesus did this. It's Jesus who accomplished this. It's Jesus in His power, raised from the dead, who did this. And then verse 31 and when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the Word of God with boldness. Again, amazing. God hears them and God responds. And this is certainly unusual. 
as a sign of God's confirmation of their prayer. He answers their prayer for boldness as they are willing and eager to continue to preach and teach about Jesus, and they receive from Him the presence of God's power. Physically, with this earth-shaking response, and then also with the presence of God's Spirit. And that presence does what? The Spirit comes, they're filled with the Holy Spirit, and what happens? They're bold. It's through the Spirit that God answers their prayer to continue to give them boldness to proclaim and preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. God is so gracious. As we consider these believers in the situation that they're in, some just believing in Jesus days maybe weeks earlier. Actually, many of them. There were 120 to start. It's only been weeks, several weeks now, but weeks that most of them have trusted in Jesus as the one who died and was raised from the dead, and now they are praying, we'll do anything. We will proclaim, if you will give us the boldness, if you will help us, we will proclaim the good news of Jesus no matter what. If these warnings and threats are real or not, we will proclaim Jesus. That's grace. It's grace. I pray that we would desire this kind of faithfulness to Him. One of the means of proclaiming the Lord's death until He comes is through taking the Lord's Supper. That's what Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 11. It's this visual proclamation to one another that we believe the same gospel that these early followers of Jesus believed. The same gospel that they gave their lives to. We say, through taking the bread and the cup, we Believe that gospel. It's a wonderful thing. And I don't want to take it for granted. I don't want to be disengaged from the truth about Jesus and His death. That His body really was broken for us. That His blood really did pour out for the forgiveness of our sins. that He really was raised to life, Messiah and King forevermore. So you're going to be dismissed by Rose to come and receive the bread and the cup and take it to your seats. And, and while we wait to take the bread and cup together, we're going to be singing. I need Thee every hour. And so let's make that our prayer as we prepare our hearts to proclaim the Lord's death to each other. Let's pray. Father, we love you and we thank you. We're so grateful for your patience with us. You're so kind to us, so gracious to us, Lord. You're worthy. You're worthy. We believe that the gospel is true, that it really is good news for us today, that Jesus, you came 
and live the life that we cannot live on our own. And you died. Though you were innocent, you died. You suffered and died. That your body was broken for us. Your blood was poured out so that we could be forgiven our sins. And Jesus, we believe that you were raised from the dead. And that you are worthy. Worthy of lives that are committed to proclaiming how good you are. So would you help us, Lord? We confess to you, we need you every single hour. Help us to embrace that, to believe that, to desire that, and to walk in that, Lord. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.